John, very much. It's, it's fascinating to me how we tell time. Dr. Anthony referred to those working in the Middle East before oil and before air conditioning. Uh, I would like to say, to point out what John was just talking about, bridging the generations here so that we're going from before oil and air conditioning to after the internet, Facebook, and in the midst of tweeting. Uh, so that generational bridge is extraordinarily important. And one of the things we did this summer with our summer internship program was have 25 students here working in Washington in a variety of organizations that deal with the U.S.-Arab relationship. We took that group to the State Department this summer, and at that point, they met uh, Ambassador Ronald Schlicker. And, and I have to say that Ambassador Schlicker was one of the highlights of their summer. He is candid, he is frank, he is funny, he is experienced, he is thoughtful, he is challenging, and most of all, and Ron, I don't know that you'll even remember having said this, but it's very true. He said, you have to understand, I'm a field guy, not a desk guy. Well, if you look at his resume, if you look at his bio in our program book, you'll see that he is very certainly both, that he is a, a, a teacher of the next generation of Foreign Service officers. He is an advisor to this generation of policymakers. He serves now as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs. He served as Ambassador in Cyprus. Early in his career, he was part of the multilateral force, multinational force, supervising the troops in the Sinai. He knows the field. He knows the desk. He is an inspiration to those young people who met him. And we are delighted to welcome him here today to open our two-day conference. Ambassador Schlicken. Well, Dr. Winship, thank you very much for that very, very kind and warm welcome on an otherwise cool and rainy morning. It really is a great pleasure, Dr. Anthony and Mr. Chairman and all of the guests here today to be here with you at the Council. Uh, you know, the longer that I'm in the State Department and the diplomatic business, the clearer it becomes to me that uh, as important as government-to-government -government contacts and that aspect of diplomacy is, that we can't have full depth, full breadth, full texture in our relations with other countries unless we have others, uh, NGOs, uh, the academic community, the business community, etc., also doing their part on a day-to-day -day basis and to the extent that all of us can maximize and synchronize our efforts and pull on the same oar, the better it's going to be for all of us and certainly the better the diplomacy is going to wind up being. So uh, let me salute the Council for everything that you've done over the years, in fact, in this regard to uh, deepen and broaden relations between our country uh, and the countries of the Arab world. So this morning, uh, I would like to provide something of a tour d'horizon, uh, a couple of general points on the new administration's foreign policy approach, and uh, then some country-by-country -country comments on where we are right now. Now, uh, of course, in what's supposed to be a 15-minute presentation, uh, my remarks are necessarily broad brush, but I bet 
that in the questions that you pose after, we're going to get to some of the nuance of each and every one of these issues. So let me start with a few remarks about the general direction of our foreign policy and then talk a little bit about uh, individual countries. And let me start by saying, of course, that events in the Middle East and our involvement in the region often have uh, very profound policy and security implications that reach well beyond the region as well. And, you know, international peace and stability, issues of nuclear proliferation that, of course, that concern the whole world, energy security, economic growth, various human rights issues, all of these as important as they are in the region, for us and for the people of the region, there are also issues that in a very real sense can affect the wider world. Uh, President Obama has said uh, in Chicago and very importantly in his speech in Cairo that the United States needs to seek a broader engagement on the principles of mutual interest and mutual respect. That, of course, is his approach to the whole globe, but as the Cairo speech made clear, uh, those principles are, principles are particularly applicable to the Arab world and to the broader Islamic world. So, in addition to our all too familiar efforts to address the political and security issues in the region that have been the traditional focus of diplomacy, uh, the President also wants us to develop new and invigorated partnerships in the fields of business, in science and technology, in education, in public health, and uh, engagement with civil society across the region. Now, as profound an effect as uh, the President's new approach has had in changing attitudes and awakening a sense of possibility and a sense of optimism, we're very aware that we must fulfill the President's vision and ensure that his words are backed up by deeds. Uh, now, to that end, our public diplomacy and our Middle East partnership initiative efforts uh, will focus on educational and cultural exchanges and empowerment-focused uh, programs that are going to help tackle the obstacles that hinder economic growth and political development in the region. And uh, more coordinated efforts through international fora, like uh, the G8's upcoming Benina Conference in Morocco, we hope to use to enhance our outreach and our effectiveness and all those issues that cut across transnational boundaries. And I think that gets a little bit to the how questions that Dr. Anthony actually set out. Uh, let me talk a little bit more about the, the strategy of engagement and the benefits of leading with diplomacy. Uh, we don't believe in talk just for talk's sake, but we believe that uh, uh, dialogue on the basis of mutual interest and mutual respect is actually a better way to get uh, what our national goals are. Uh, we believe that through that sort of uh, principled and sustained engagement that we strengthen our position vis-a-vis -vis both our friends and with those with whom we have serious disagreements. Uh, with our allies, uh, when we take this approach, we're reinvigorating more comprehensive partnerships with those allies, we do a better job at increasing consultation and dialogue and a better job at forming some sort of consensus 
in support of the goals that we're talking about with those folks. Uh, when we do that, we also increase our allies' investment in and ownership of the policies that we can push together. Now, when we're dealing with our adversaries, when we lead with diplomacy and when we pursue engagement, we're better able to present our views directly, both directly to our interlocutors and directly to the peoples uh, of those nations. And in a way that we were unable to do uh, with a policy based mainly on isolation and confrontation. So by being willing to engage in diplomacy, we diminish the notion that the United States is innately hostile to certain peoples, to certain states, uh, to certain leaders. And in that way, in a very real sense, we can remove, remove a lot of the excuses that those more adversarial countries have used over the years as a way of evading the, the gravamen of the issues that we're talking about. Uh, and we also think that through the engagement that uh, the people in those countries with whom we've had certain adversarial relationships might be more empowered, if you will, to press their leaders to respond positively to our positive overtures. We believe that when we lead with diplomacy, we can create space for peaceful, negotiated resolutions of differences. Now, we don't expect that the simple act of engaging a foreign country is going to automatically result uh, in the resolution that we seek. But we do know that without that simple act of engagement, demonstrating our willingness to engage, that is, that it's that much more difficult to marshal sustained international support for addressing all of those challenges that still persist. Uh, so at this point, let me start talking about uh, uh, some individual countries in the region and with an overview of what we think the issues at hand with them are. Uh, let me start with Iran. Uh, resolving the challenges posed by Iran is one of the administration's top priorities. Uh, there are lots of very, very major issues uh, with which we have profound disagreements with Iran. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the nuclear file later, but of course we uh, also believe that Iran's repression of its own people, certainly what we saw in the wake of the June 12th elections, is a very major issue. Uh, we think that Iran's continuing uh, uh, agitation against the Arab-Israeli peace process is a matter that's deeply troubling as well. Uh, we think that their support for terrorist groups in the region, all of these things taken together, we believe, pose major risk to uh, international stability, especially in our region. Uh, in coordination with our allies and friends, we're using a range of diplomatic tools, uh, including direct principled engagement alongside the prospect of enhanced pressure to influence Iran to change course and to become a constructive and responsible member of the region and the international community. We think that if Iran takes that course, it would benefit Iran itself and would benefit the region more generally. Now, the, the tool, if you will, of engagement uh, was put to the test for the first time two weeks ago uh, during candid and direct discussions with Iran that took place in Geneva. 
uh, we and our P5 plus one partners uh, reinforced our concerns about Iran's nuclear program. We stressed the need for Iran to take concrete and practical steps to meet its international obligations and thus to demonstrate that if that says that its nuclear program is exclusively peaceful in nature, there are means that they can prove that to the world. Now, those discussions, as you've heard from President Obama and Secretary Clinton, were a constructive beginning, but they have to be followed as well by constructive action. Now, we have again urged Iran to take the steps necessary to live up to its obligations while reminding them that we're not prepared to negotiate indefinitely. However, should Iran decide to take those concrete positive steps and decide to live up to its obligations, and we very much hope that they will, then there is a path forward toward a better relationship with the United States, toward increased integration with the international community, and indeed uh, toward a better future for all Iranians. And I should note that uh, at this point, while Iran's nuclear ambitions take center stage, uh, we're not going to lose sight of the American citizens who are currently detained or missing there. Uh, following a recent consular visit by our Swiss protecting power, we again urge the Iranians to promptly return what you may know as the free hikers. Uh, we also have the cases of American citizens Kian Tajbaksh and Reza Tagavi, and we continue to call upon the Iranians to release them immediately. And we've asked, also asked Iran a number of times uh, to use all of its facilities to determine the whereabouts and in, to ensure the safe return of uh, Robert Levinson. Uh, let me turn to Middle East peace at this point. And again, Middle East peace is a key focus of the president's strategic engagement. Uh, we define comprehensive peace, of course, as peace between Israel and the Palestinians, between Israel and Syria, between Israel and Lebanon, and by full, normal relations between Israel and all of the countries of the Arab world. Now, President Obama and Secretary Clinton are personally committed to the effort to end this conflict, or I should say these conflicts in that case. So on behalf of the President, uh, Special Envoy Mitchell has been working closely with Israeli and Palestinian leaders, with regional states, and with our partners in the quartet to relaunch negotiations in an atmosphere conducive to their success. In, in fact, uh, starting today and through the next several days, Israel, an Israeli and a Palestinian delegation will be in town for more such talks. And as you, as you know, uh, Secretary Clinton is due to give a report to the President sometime in the near future about where we are and what we need to do next. So to help achieve this atmosphere of wherein we can launch successful negotiations again, we've asked all the parties in the region to take meaningful steps and to refrain from actions that make negotiations more difficult. In his Cairo speech, President Obama called on Israelis and Palestinians to fulfill the obligations agreed to under the so-called roadmap in 2003. Now, for Israel, those obligations include a halt to settlement activity. And additionally, Israel should continue to take steps to improve daily life for the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. 
for their part, the Palestinians' responsibilities include continued progress on security, uh, measures to prevent terror, measures to end incitement, and efforts to reform, increased efforts to reform Palestinian institutions. Uh, we also think that the Arab states need to do more to help build momentum and to help build the atmosphere that can sustain serious negotiations, including reaching out directly to Israel, including recognizing Israel's legitimacy, supporting the development of viable Palestinian institutions, and supporting the Palestinian Authority, President Abbas. Uh, these are important steps toward peace and normalization, and in fact, we think that such steps actually very much are in line with the spirit of the Arab Peace Initiative. Now, we've seen a little progress, but there's also, of course, a lot of room for improvement in all of these areas. The Palestinians have, especially with the, the help of General Dayton, strengthened their efforts on security, but they do need to do more to stop incitement, and they do need to move forward toward negotiations. Uh, the Israelis have facilitated greater freedom of movement for the Palestinians in the West Bank, and they've shown some willingness to restrain settlement activity. But both sides also need to translate these discussions, these intimations of progress and possible progress into real action. And of course, it remains important for the Arab states to take concrete steps to promote peace themselves. Now, in New York on September 22nd, uh, the president had frank and productive bilateral meetings with both Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Abbas, and then a trilateral meeting with both of those leaders uh, together. Now, in those meetings, uh, our president expressed his determination to get the negotiations started as soon as possible. And he made clear that we can't restart the talks from scratch. So the basic terms of the negotiations have been agreed upon by both sides in the past. So there is a way to get them started now. We need to find it. Uh, and as the President has also said, despite all of the obstacles, despite all of the history, the burden of history, despite all of the mistrust, we have to find a way forward. We have to summon the will to break the deadlock that's trapped generations now of Israelis and Palestinians in an endless cycle of conflict and suffering. So we cannot continue the same pattern of taking tentative steps forward and then stepping back. Now, progress is only going to be made through the determined, patient, and persevering engagement between the parties and, of course, of the United States and our quartet partners as well. Uh, let me give a few remarks on the Lebanon and Syria. Uh, first, a few words about U.S.-Syrian relations. Now, our engagement with Syria is still in what you might call uh, an initial phase, phase of relationship building or rebuilding. Now, during this phase, we've had a series of frank discussions on a wide range of issues. Uh, those discussions have identified some areas where our stated interests converge, such as a mutual desire for a stable Iraq, and a mutual desire for a comprehensive regional peace that includes the Palestinian state and Israel at peace with its neighbors. Now, our goal in engaging Syria is to see Syria play 
a constructive, stabilizing role in the region. I think it's too early to say whether or not our efforts have been successful, but there have been modest steps forward, uh, specifically affecting the mechanics of our bilateral relationship. And that limited progress so far does warrant continuing the dialogue and continuing the effort. Uh, the impending return of a U.S. ambassador to Damascus, we think will enhance the effectiveness and potential of the efforts so far. Now, turning to Lebanon, uh, the U.S. remains committed to a sovereign and secure Lebanon and to full implementation of relevant Security Council resolutions. And let me be very clear, because you see in the Lebanese press uh, and in private dealings with Lebanese folks, that no deals are going to be made at Lebanon's expense as we follow a policy of regional engagement elsewhere. In fact, that regional engagement elsewhere gives us a good opportunity directly to make our points about a free, sovereign Lebanon. Uh, we also continue to support the current efforts by Prime Minister-designate Hariri to assemble a cabinet. Uh, we hope that a resolution to the remaining challenges to the government formation process can be found quickly and that new government needs to be installed quickly to build on the progress that the prior government under Prime Minister Senora has made on political reform, on economic growth, and on the consolidation of security in Lebanon. Now, beyond the formation of the government, uh, we also remain extremely concerned about the role Hezbollah is playing in Lebanon and about its rearmament, which is clearly inconsistent with Security Council Resolution 1701. We think that the group continues to pose uh, a threat to peace and stability in, re in Lebanon and, in fact, in the region more generally. Uh, Iraq. The U.S. remains committed to bolstering Iraq as a sovereign nation and supporting its progress on a path to stability and prosperity. Uh, now, the President announced in February that we're going to continue to help Iraq train its security forces and to develop its government and its economy. As our military presence in Iraq draws down, uh, the Strategic Framework Agreement, what we've shortened to SFA in bureaucraties, is going to guide the long-term uh, basis for the relationship with Iraq. Uh, so we will kind of see what you might call a civilianization of our dealings with the Iraqi government as well. Uh, we're going to direct U.S. assistance through this SFA to help rebuild the capacity of the Iraqi government in a lot of critical areas, uh, including better delivery of public services, economic reform, uh, strengthening the rule of law and respect for human rights, uh, and we're working with the Iraqis to foster business and development. In fact, there's going to be a big conference here in Washington next week uh, dedicated to that subject. So we've seen a lot of political progress in Iraq, including the recent provincial and regional elections. Uh, we hope for similar success in the national legislative elections that are uh, due to be held in January 2010. Uh, we really think that there are lots of challenges that remain in Iraq, and we're going to have bad days in Iraq, but the, the chances 
Bitcoin or Roth that's fully sovereign, stable, and self-reliant are much, much better than all of us dreamed they would be uh, two or three years ago. Uh, in the Gulf, we share with our friends there a vision of a peaceful, stable, and prosperous Middle East with the GCC countries. Uh, we're committed to working with our Gulf partners to seek an end uh, to persistent conflicts in the region, and particularly to a lasting peace between Israel and its neighbors. Uh, we continue to support the military, law enforcement, and regulatory mechanisms to combat anti-terror, combat terrorism in the region with our Gulf partners. Uh, military cooperation with our Gulf partners remains very, very strong. Uh, recently, uh, we've been talking with our Gulf partners very much, as Ambassador Al-Khazri can attest, uh, about the different issues related to Iran. Uh, recently, uh, we have determined that deepening our dialogue with the Gulf countries on the problem Yemen faces is something that we all need to do uh, for the sake of helping uh, Yemen through the difficult times that it's going through. Uh, a special note on the UAE and our 123 agreement. Uh, we think that the robust non-proliferation features of that 123 agreement are a really good example uh, to the region. Uh, the UAE has concluded that indigenous fuel cycle capabilities are not needed to fully enjoy the benefits of civilian nuclear power. We think that that's a lesson, in fact, that Iran take very, very good notice of. Uh, I think I'm running out of time, Dr. Anthony, but uh, I do have some remarks on the Maghreb, but maybe we'll catch those in the questions. So with that, let's make this interactive. I'm sure you're tired of me just talking at you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. In the interest of time, we do have a number of questions that were put to, uh, to you. Uh, I'll just ask them, but I'm not sure we can focus on them at, at the moment uh, because of the next uh, event here. One was from uh, Admiral Bernson. Please ask it so that the audience will know what it is. And I have another one related to Admiral Bernson's, I believe. Well, it's actually a two-parter. The first part was uh, what would be Egypt's role in, uh, in dealing with the mission in Gaza, especially allowing uh, assistance to rebuilding. The second half of that actually is uh, a question that perhaps is more important. Given that we focus on mutual interests and uh, mutual respect, would this be expected to have an influence in changing our relationship with others in the way we deal with others? Right now, we can deal with all One that's related to that, or at least you can segue to it, uh, Mr. Ambassador, that has to do with settlements, and it is a how question. Uh, can the continued growth of Israeli settlements be stopped? How can final status negotiations go forward without some clear evidence that Israel stops and even uh, rolls back its settlements? Okay, thank you very much for those very good questions. Uh, with regard to Egypt and Gaza, let me start out by saying that uh, we have a very strong strategic relationship with the Egyptians. We've had it, of course, for 30-odd years now. Uh, actually, that strategic relationship, as you know, for the last 30 years has been focused mainly on 
political and security issues, uh, we actually think that we have a, a good chance of rather broadening that strategic approach with Egypt right now in certain select multilateral fora. Uh, we've had some successes, for example, in working together on a freedom of expression resolution in Geneva. We've never been able to do that before. Uh, so there are some interesting possibilities there. Getting back to Gaza, uh, the Egyptians are very, very strong partners in the effort to get the Israelis and the Palestinians back to the negotiating table again. The Egyptians are also deeply involved in efforts at uh, Palestinian reconciliation, which of course in a very real way means uh, PA slash Fatah, Hamas reconciliation. Uh, those efforts haven't borne fruit yet, although there are lots of things that are underway uh, right now. Uh, we know that the Egyptians' efforts are also centered uh, on a way of boosting the legitimacy of PA institutions uh, and uh, making sure that the, the world knows that the leader of the Palestinians is President Abbas. Uh, they're also uh, very determined to make sure that the, the, the Palestinians, when negotiations start, do so from a position of strength. So you know, we're very much partners every step of the way with the Egyptians on this. Uh, with regard to Hamas, uh, we're not dealing with Hamas, and at this point we're not thinking of how to deal with Hamas directly. We think Hamas is actually playing a very irresponsible role in Gaza because they've messed up in the place quite badly. Uh, they, you know, they do have an opportunity to, if you will, come in from the political fold by recognition of Israel, uh, etc. They, they know what they need to do. I've seen no indication yet that they're interested in taking those steps forward. Uh, over with regard to the settlement. Make sure I get the right parts of the question. Well, as everybody as everybody knows, uh, the question of the settlements is featured very, very prominently uh, in the peace process efforts that uh, Senator Mitchell has shepherded so far. And uh, President Obama has expressed himself very clearly uh, on the uh, that he doesn't accept the legality of continued Israeli settlement activity there. Uh, the question posed was, can final status negotiations go forward without some clear evidence that Israel will stop and even scale back settlements? Well, the answer to that to me is very clear. Final status negotiations have to go forward. That's going to be the key to solving not only the question of the settlements, but all of the other very, very difficult, thorny final status issues that the parties are going to have to grapple with. So until they get to those negotiations together, uh, there's not going to be a solution to the settlements question or any other question. So it's essential that the parties, with we shepherding them, with the help of the quartet, get back to the negotiation table. No one ever said it was going to be easy. And it's not easy. It's very hard. It's very painful. I'm sure Senator Mitchell would rather be doing other things this morning uh, than this. But he is doing it. And so patience, persistence, determination is going to be required by us, by all sides. We're going to need your support as well in your own ways. Uh, but we have to get back to the table.
Please join me in thanking Ambassador Slicker.